Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Who will foot the compensation bill for the massive post office scandal? I'm Lucy Fisher. This is Political Fix from the Financial Times. And with me in the studio today are Political Fix regulars, FT columnist Robert Shrimsley. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Robert. And the FT's political editor, George Parker. Hello, Lucy. Hi, George. Also here is the FT's Rafe Uddin. He's been leading the reporting team, which has included you and me, George, covering this story of the sub-postmasters who've suffered for years in the Horizon software scandal. More than 700 people were convicted between 2000 and 2014 of theft or false accounting using flawed data from the Fujitsu software system. Rafe, welcome and thanks for joining us to to tell us about this scandal today. Hi, Lucy. So uh, give us an overview of specifically what's happened in the last week on the subject. Sure. So after a ITV drama aired across the sort of first four days of the new year, um, public outcry around the prosecution of sub-postmasters has grown. Um, within a week of that drama ending, the Prime Minister appeared at the dispatch box on Wednesday and said that the government was going to take the sort of unprecedented step to table legislation to overturn the convictions of several hundred people who had been convicted using this flawed data. And he said in particular that he was going to um, bring forward an upfront payment for those who'd been pursued by the post office for civil uh, litigation uh, and also uh, talked about the compensation that will be given to all those wrongly convicted. Yeah, so the £75,000 will cover 555 sub-postmasters who were pursued in civil cases and brought a, a group litigation against the post office in 2019. That helped really sort of unravel uh, the Horizon sort of scandal. It really exposed it and brought it into the public fall. Um, and then the government also sort of made the point that it was going to move expediently on compensation for all other sub-postmasters, particularly those who were convicted. Well, there's a lot to get into here, and I want to unpick some of what you said, including why it took an ITV drama for the government finally to treat this matter with a sense of urgency. Um, it is the biggest miscarriage of justice in modern British political history. Um, Rishi Sunak, other ministers uh, have agreed with that verdict. Um, let's just talk about the, the financial aspect of this. You, you've mentioned the sums uh, of, of compensation. Just how big could this eventual bill be? And ultimately, who's going to pay it? In particular, are Fujitsu on the hook for this? So the government has set aside a billion pounds in compensation to cover all affected sub-postmasters. It's split across three different compensation schemes for people who were affected in different ways. So people who were pursued for shortfalls, people who were pursued in civil cases, and people who were convicted. Um, In terms of Fujitsu's role in this, at the moment, the government is footing the entirety of this bill. Um, None of the money comes out of the post office as a business itself. The government has had to put that money into the post office because otherwise it would be insolvent. And ultimately, 
it's unclear whether Fujitsu themselves will have to foot some of the bill for it, given that their software underpinned much of these sorts of decisions to go after postmasters. We've heard from ministers like Kevin Hollenrake, the Postal Affairs Minister, that they will potentially look at uh, putting financial sanctions on Fujitsu if the public inquiry finds that it was their systems at fault and that they bear some culpability in this scandal. Yeah, so the, the minister has repeatedly for the past year made this point that the government doesn't expect to pick up the full tab and it doesn't want the taxpayer to pick up the full tab. It doesn't feel that would be right and appropriate I guess the question now is whether the government would be able to make a compelling case, possibly in court, that Fujitsu was was wholly or partially liable for some of this compensation. And that might be quite tricky. And whether the inquiry is sufficient to, to make that judgment is also unclear. Why is that? So the government will have to make a very compelling case that Fujitsu's systems were really partially to blame for this whole thing. You know, ultimately, Fujitsu weren't the ones prosecuting sub-postmasters. It was the post office that did that. Well, let's talk about the inquiry, because you were there when it resumed on Thursday. Um, tell us what happened and what the atmosphere was like. I mean, for, for people who have attended the inquiry before, um, they will have walked into a very sort of empty uh, office space in the middle of London. On Thursday, it was hectic, filled with journalists from national broadcasters, Camera crews were set up and interviewing various sub-postmasters as they filtered in and out of the actual evidence session. I mean, much of the the focus wasn't on the evidence being given in the actual room. It was on the sub-postmasters who were there and able to talk to the media about their experiences and, and what the past 10 or so days has been like. Emotional? Were people visibly moved? Were they angry, upset? depressed at how much time has passed since this scandal first came to light? I mean, the truth is that the sub-postmasters are are a remarkable set of people. Uh, They've campaigned often independently and without much by way of support for for more than a decade. Um, And they'll continue to go on campaigning. So I was told on Thursday by one of the victims, Janet Skinner, who was wrongfully convicted and exonerated, told me that as exhausted as she is, she will continue to, to be present And to be that voice, because if she doesn't, other people won't come forward. Other people who are affected won't come forward. Um, So it's a huge strain, but but they're a remarkable set of people. A very moving story. I want to bring in George and Robert on this to talk a bit about the politics. Um, George, what do you make of the fact that it took for a TV drama to really get the government to act with any alacrity on this? Well, I think it's shocking and also remarkable that the people, the ICV production team who made that drama had such an impact and touched the nerve and brought to life and in a way that, you know, years of dogged investigative journalism and indeed some political action as well through the years had not really achieved. And I was speaking to Paul Scully this week, one of the um, post office ministers, who I think the postal workers thought, the some postmasters thought did actually listen to them. And he said he was watching this and he he'd been through. He knew all about the cases. Just remind us when he roughly when he served. So he was the post office minister between 2020 and 2022, and he said that throughout the four hours of this drama, for about two and a half hours of it, he was weeping. And you know, for someone to be affected like that, and he knew the cases, and he he'd been living it. I think it's remarkable. So it is a, a strange thing, but you can see 
how it happened. And um, Stephen Flynn, the SNP leader at Westminster, was saying this week it was a failure of the whole Westminster system. He neglected to mention that it's not been any better in Scotland. Mm. It's been a little slower. Indeed, that's absolutely true. And because this came to light gradually, ministers had taken the word of the post office. Ed Davey, we might talk about later, the Liberal Democrat leader, former post office minister, didn't seem to be taking it serious enough, but successive ministers didn't take it serious enough. Then they did. Then they set up a compensation scheme. They thought that that had basically addressed the problem, but then they sort of took their eye off the ball because they hadn't sort of calculated the agony that people were going through because the compensation scheme was and the appeals process was taking so long to roll out. And that was the thing that was jolted into life by the drama, wasn't it? It was the fact that eventually they thought, hang on, this is unacceptable. These only a relative handful of the cases have been heard and we needed to just get hold of the whole thing and put a bonfire under it. Robert, who do you think is to blame? Well, I mean, I think the struggling is, although I agree with everything George just said, it, in fact, by conventional state standards, things were already moving. The public inquiry was already underway before this ITV um, drama came out. So things were moving. But the point I think what it really illuminates is just how incredibly slow the British state can move when it is dealing with individual injustices. And we've seen it, you know, the, the infected blood scandal, the Grenfell Tower and the cladding scandal. There's numerous things where... A Hillsborough, where, where even when it becomes obvious to, to a government, any government, this isn't a party point, even when it becomes obvious to a government that there's a fundamental problem, the state manages to move in an incredibly slow way. And that old adage about justice delayed, mm. being justice denied, r- really comes to mind. And you'll see ministries getting involved in how, how do we process the compensation scheme? And that's another year of thinking about it all. And, you know, when can we pay it out? And what do we do? And we have to let justice take its course. And, and I think one of the things that's really struck me this week is there was no particular reason other than a bit of an outcry after this TV documentary, why the government had to move this week. It chose to. And that's the really important point. Government decided, actually, this has gone on long enough, we're going to do something. And I think that ought to be the lesson that I would hope other governments take from this, because all the parties failed in one way or another Mm -hmm. on this scandal. And that actually they have the power to act very fast when they choose to do so. I think it's a really important point you make there and that this is a general trend of foot dragging um, in cases where, you know, individual human beings are suffering deeply. Do you think the nature of this scandal, that it spanned many years, that it, uh, you know, the finger can be pointed at Labour ministers, at Lib Dem ministers, at Tory ministers, means that in, in more recent months, in the past year or two, there's been a sense that they didn't need to act quite so quickly because the blame could be spread? Or is that too cynical an interpretation? I don't think it's the party point about how the blame could be spread widely. I think it's just the way governance seems to work in Britain. The wheels of justice grind slowly. Look how long public inquiries take. There's just a general... There is a a time scale in which governments operate and there is a time scale in which normal people operate. Mm. And if you're a government, the thought that something might take five to ten years doesn't seem that astonishing. But if you're a wronged postmaster, and very short of money now because Mm -hmm. you've lost your job, you've lost your savings, these things matter enormously. And it's one of the things that really is worth addressing is the failure of government to understand impact at an individual human level, all governments, and to understand when you need to move more swiftly. I don't think it's it's exactly pernicious. I don't think it's deliberate. It's just, this is how it is, and nobody seems to want to do anything about it. 
there are clearly lessons to learn. I just want to stick on this point of culpability a little longer. And George, you mentioned Ed <laughs> Davey. I mean, he's come in for an inordinate amount of flack on this, hasn't he? Two questions for you, I suppose. The first, is it fair that he's really been pinpointed uh, as an especially egregious minister in charge of, of postal affairs? And secondly, whether fair or not, how much danger is he in? Is this going to end his career as leader of the Liberal Democrats? Well, it is a very serious situation for him because of the public outcry that we've just been discussing. The fact this is an issue which has touched the public nerve and made people outraged. And they've seen in writing how Ed Davey behaved as Postal Affairs Minister between 2010 and 2012. Now, as you said, Lucy, this saga had begun whilst Labour was in office and um, his predecessor in that job was um, Pat McFadden, who's was known at the time as Postman Pat, now is running Labour's election campaign. But nevertheless, we saw evidence of Ed Davey turning down a meeting with Alan Bates, the lead campaigner on this issue. He did later meet him, and some of the Lib Dems point out that Ed Davey was the first post office minister to meet Alan Bates, but he initially turned it down. After he did meet Alan Bates, he didn't see it through. He was fobbed off by the post office and basically left it at that. Um, does that make him more culpable than all the ministers that came after him? And for the ministers in the Conservative administration who failed to expedite the appeals process, I think listeners will make their own judgments on that. But politics isn't fair. And this is your point. And the fact is the Conservative press over a number of days have been targeting Ed Davey on the front page of various newspapers as the public face of this cruel, ineffective officialdom that Robert was describing uh, there. And it has really concerned the Liberal Democrats how much damage he's taking. You know, they were worried about how long this would last for. And speaking to one old Lib Dem hand, he said, look, it's not going to be a one-day wonder. This will go on and on and on. And that proved to be the case. I think one of the key points is people don't actually know who Ed Davey is. Mm. He's got a very low public profile. So the first time they're really introduced to him, it's a yeah. massively negative story. And the Liberal Democrats traditionally need their leader to be a bigger figure than the party, which he isn't anyway. Mm -hmm. So this is this is very, very awkward for them. Let, other, let's, other, do, let's do a straw poll. Who thinks he will stay? Robert, do you think he'll have to quit or he'll cling on? I don't think he'll have to quit. And in the end, given that the Lib Dem vote in next election is likely to be quite tactical voting, I, I think it probably won't make that much difference in the end, but it's not doing him any good. No. George? I think he'll ride it out as well, but I think he's damaged by it. Rafe? No, I agree with George and Robert. I think he'll ride it out. Okay. Vote of confidence for Davey here. <laughs> I, I'm not so sure, I'm interested mm. to, to, to be uh, quite frank. But one, of the is, um, one of the reasons why Ed Davey behaved as he did is because we've gotten to this place of arm's length bodies. The post office essentially have this operational independence and autonomy. I mean, those with very long memories remember how Michael Howard tried to dodge responsibility for problems in prisons by saying the prison service operates at arm's length. And we've created all these institutions of the state to which the government has given operational autonomy for perfectly good reasons. It's not necessarily the wrong thing, but it does mean they hide behind that whenever there's a problem. So ministers don't have that direct input into the way something is run. And when a problem breaks out, they're very, very happy to say, oh, well, of course, it's just a post office matter. I think that's right. And I think there are moves in some parts of the cabinet office, behind the scenes of government, to try and in future, potentially gain back some uh, control of that. But that's a subject <laughs> for an another day. Um, Rafe, final word to you on this subject. Where does this story go next? What are the, the big questions that remain to be answered? The really big question at the moment is how quickly the government can table legislation to exonerate sub-postmasters and how quickly those exonerations come through. 
But then there are questions about Fujitsu. We reported earlier this week that it had been awarded billions of pounds in joint and solo contracts for IT services in various government departments since the landmark Court of Appeal ruling. And that was since 2019, wasn't it? Since Rishi Sunak himself was Chancellor and then Prime Minister. Yeah, more than £3 billion worth of those contracts were awarded when Rishi Sunak was Chancellor and Prime Minister. Um, And it will raise questions about how aware the government is of Fujitsu's role in, in this scandal. And then finally, the public inquiry will conclude this year, but not before taking evidence from senior post office, Fujitsu and other sorts of government ministers. And they've not given evidence before. And alongside that will be masses of documents, which will also document how they engaged and interacted with postmasters and what their involvement was in this. And that will be quite major when it does land. Well, uh, as you and I are working on a piece for for this weekend uh, about concerns about Fujitsu's uh, performance in contracts dating back to the early 2010s and a move um, by uh, people in government during the coalition era to try and exclude them and other companies, but with a heavy focus on Fujitsu um, from gaining new public deals that was called Project Sushi uh, in a nod to um, Fujitsu's uh, Japanese heritage. So I look forward to whatever more digging you've got on this subject uh, next week. Well, thank you for your debut appearance on Political Fix, Rafe, and hope you'll come back soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Away from the post office scandal this week, there's been focus on Labour's intentions with accusations that Keir Starmer would run a nanny state if he's the next Prime Minister. Uh, George, Starmer hosted a huddle yesterday with journalists. Um, If you could start off by telling uh, our listeners what a huddle is, if they're not familiar. But he used an interesting analogy comparing the state to a parent, didn't he? He lent in, in some ways, to this idea that Labour would pursue nanny state policies. Yeah, very much so. Well, the huddle, first of all, Lucy, to edify the listeners, um, it's just a, a group of journalists asking questions of a politician. And in this case... It took place in um, the leader of the opposition's old rooms in the House of Commons, which I haven't been to for many years, actually, behind the Speaker's chair, sort of wood-panelled room, as you'd imagine. And it was the start of, I think it's going to be a a series of such briefings, because Keir Starmer's planning to go out to the country uh, for 48 hours after Prime Minister's question time every couple of weeks and um, take his messages out. This is part of his drive to land his mission-led government with the country, and there's a series of roadshows on that. And in this particular one, he wanted to talk about his child health action plan, which has a number of ideas which I think the public or his opponents would see as evidence of him wanting to pursue a a nanny state approach. So whether it's, for example, setting up breakfast clubs in schools, or most obviously the one that's attracted so much attention is this idea of supervised toothbrushing Hmm. in primary schools or in breakfast clubs. Um, And people say, well, that's the role of parents, isn't it? And he does say, look, This is, of course, primarily the role of parents. But if people want to say this is the nanny state, I'm prepared to take on that argument. And in the case of toothbrushing, he cites the example, which I hadn't heard before, but apparently is true, which is the principal cause of admission to hospitals for six to 10-year-olds is tooth decay um, and have teeth removed. And he said that's a scandal, not just for the children concerned, but for the state which has to pick up the the tab for that treatment. So on the one hand, 
leaning into nanny state policies, as you have outlined, George. Um, On the other, Robert, you picked up on um, Starmer's speech to kick off this year, in which he said, uh, and I quote, he promised a politics that treads a little lighter on all our lives. Um, Now, there was, of course, a reference to the lovely line from W.B. Yeats, I have spread my dreams under your feet, tread softly because you tread on my dreams. So what's going on, Robert? Why is he one week saying politics needs to tread more lightly, have a have a softer footprint, and the next week leaning into sort of nanny statism. Well, to be fair to him, I mean, the reference that he talked, when he, a politics that treads a little more lightly, in its narrow meaning, what he was referring to is the anger and rage and confrontationalism of politics and the sense that this government has gone out of its way to find enemies to go after as a way of shoring up its base and that ever since Brexit, there's been that sort of political argument intruding more into our lives than perhaps you know th- those who aren't like us and who live and breathe this stuff w- would, would welcome. On the other hand, he also then went on to say, but actually, I want it to tread more lightly because everyone needs to be a bit more grown up and compromised more. And we need a spirit of national unity and people agreeing things they might not agree to. So I think it's one of those things that if you think you're about to be in power, you certainly want less argument about the policies that you're going to introduce. Um, but I think there was a second point, which is what I wanted to focus on, which is that it's all very well to say I want politics intruding less in terms of arguments. But actually, if you're going to have a series of policies in which you are a more active and interventionist government, and, and you don't join the Labour Party to do less in government, you know, the whole point of the Labour Party is people believe in putting their finger on the scales of society and making it a bit more just. So actually, while he may speak more softly, Labour Party is committed to doing lots and lots of things to intervene in society. Now, lots of people will think those are good things. Yeah, people might well think that tackling childhood obesity is a good thing. Um, the toothbrushing, I don't know. But you know, <laughs> I, I think there is an argument that says there are lots of things that aren't working in society. And if government can help on them, then it should do so. And that will be the Labour position. Yes, so you're right. The Labour has this tradition of activism. And George, where do you think the public stand on this question? Do people want more autonomy? Do they disdain an overbearing government? Or are people suspicious that, you know, the current Conservative-led government is in hock to kind of corporate influence that stops it tackling sugar and some of the, you know, big business that cause uh, obesity? And do they want more intervention from the state? It's hard to tell, but my sense is probably, yes, they do. And actually, Rishi Sunak is already onto that a bit, isn't he? If you look at um, the centrepiece of his conference speech in the autumn of 2023, it was basically banning smoking mm-hmm. or phasing out smoking. I mean, I've heard Tory MPs recently saying, we don't ban things. Well, actually, yes, you you do. And that's a good, very good example. Look at the online harms bill, another example. Vaping. Vaping. I mean, regulators, it's everywhere. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, so I think there is an appetite. And it, just going back to Robert's point about Labour governments intervening, I mean... The National Health Service, I don't want to trivialise it, but is probably the greatest example of the nanny state. If you think about the state looking after the people, um, you know, it's revered in this country. So I think there is a certain amount of appetite. I mean, I don't think the government should be intruding into every nook and cranny, but I think there is a just a, an economic reality apart from anything else that if you have a health system which is creaking at the seams, is deeply inefficient and unable to treat the rising number of people coming through the hospital front door, you have to do something about the number of people coming in through the hospital front door. So I think there is a, a case to be made. And this is a major, I mean, this is potentially and historically a big philosophical divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't been so obvious in the last five or six years, but fundamentally the extent to which you say, look, people have to make choices and some of them make bad choices and we should leave them free to do it, be it gambling or eating junk food or whatever it is. And, you know, when Liz Truss, in, in, do you remember her? Uh, her, her, her brief um, interregnum as prime minister, she was one who pushed back very strongly on this, on 
sugar taxes on fizzy drinks and things like this. And this is a fundamental philosophical argument. But actually, I, I, I agree with George. I think the general tendency of the public is, although they don't want the government telling me personally what to do, they think it's often quite a good idea that government intervenes to tackle social problems. And so what, what might those problems be? We've, we've obviously heard from Starmer this week about some of the, the, the process for driving this change, these mission delivery boards, the ethos we've talked about in any state. Where else might it apply? Planning? Well, it's definitely going to apply in planning because he has committed himself to a streamlining the planning process so that people can find it harder to block um, planning processes. He's committed to, for example, a review of the school curriculum so that we'll yet again see um, intervention to to change what people are taught in schools. You're going to see it happening um, all over the places. I don't think it's especially unique to Labour. I mean, the Conservatives have been doing this all the way through their time in office as well. Well, exactly. Look at Michael Gove basically Mm. interfering in the curriculum as well. I mean, all governments, I mean, the government's, mission basically is to regulate and interfere with people's lives to a lesser or greater extent and you know, you'd probably say that margaret thatcher's mission was to try to get the government off the back of the back of the people but the trend i, I agree with robert has been very much towards a more interventionist form of government the other point about some of these measures be they sugar taxes anti-obesity drives they're all quite cheap mm. so actually if you've got no money there are things that you can do to show you are intervening for the health or the well-being of society, and in the long run may even have some savings, though not in the short term. So these these are things an opposition can promise to do with relatively low cost attached to them. Well, I suspect we'll be hearing many more such low-cost interventions measures from Labour in the months ahead before the election. Well, we've just got time left for the Political Fix weekly stock picks. Uh, George, as the winner of the 2023 Hooray. stock picking, <laughs> who are you buying or selling? Well, look, I mean, I'm going to buy a couple of people who whose careers are going nowhere. So I'm, I'm going to make sure that I start 2024 off a bad foot. Kevin Hollingrake, the post office minister, I think he's done a good job in capturing the mood of the country and dealing with the post office issue this week. And Paul Scully, someone who hopes to become the Tory candidate for London mayor, didn't make it. It's quite bitter about that, but nevertheless, I think he's done pretty well this week. Sell, I'm afraid, going back to our earlier conversation, Ed Davey, I'm afraid to say that I think I don't think he's going to be forced to quit. I think he'll carry on, but I think this has been a damaging episode for him. Robert? Okay, so I'm going for a, a, a slow burn one. I'm going to sell Hamza Youssef because mm. uh, actually I think it's going to be another terrible year for the SNP. They are languishing. He hasn't really got a strategy for trying to push the independence issue um, there's every sign that Labour is encroaching on them ever further as we head towards the Westminster elections. Uh, we're still waiting on the prosecutions, or charges rather, from the cases that the police are investigating into Peter Murrell and Nicola Sturgeon. And it just feels like the SNP is drifting and it's heading towards a general election, presumably towards the end of the year, where the fundamental question is not going to be one of independence, particularly Scotland, but do you want the Tories out? And he doesn't look to me like a leader who's getting on top of the situation. And all you can really see coming out of the SNP and strategy at the moment is attempts to position itself to the left, left of Labour and say Labour is a bit of a, a pink Tory outfit and particularly for focusing very hard on things like Gaza. I'm, I'm not doubting the sincerity of the issue, but the fact is it's not where the people of Scotland are fundamentally focused. So I think it feels like they're drifting and he's going to have a bad year. Lucy, what are you going for? Well, like George, uh, and as I indicated earlier, I am selling uh, Ed Davey. Um, and on the flip side of that, I'd say buy Daisy Cooper, the Lib Dem deputy leader. She's seen as a very strong performer in the Commons. You know, she has deep roots in the party. She's steeped uh, in its history. She's a good campaigner. 
she's got a sort of a good media uh, manner. A bit more charisma as well. She's she? got a lot of charisma. And I think, you know, Leila Moran's another name that often comes up as someone waiting in the wings for the leadership. But I think she's considered potentially a little bit less a reliable um, choice. So look, if Davy has to go, I think it could be Cooper taking the reins. And they could, so even if he doesn't go, they might choose to elevate her a bit more in the coming weeks just to, so that the focus is on someone else. Very good point. Robert, George, thanks for joining. Thanks, Lucy. Cheers, Lucy. That's it for now. My thanks to Rafe Uden, Robert Shrimsley and George Parker. Political Fix is presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Audrey Tinlin. The executive producer is Manuela Saragosa. Music and audio mix by Breen Turner. The FT's head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. We'll meet again here next week. <laughs>